0: And we'll explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. This is going to be a great episode. I'm very excited for it. Uh, Much like, you know, the 100 plus episodes before it, I'm going to take a topic that I'm fascinated with, hence the title, and I'm going to do a deep dive with an expert. This week's no exception, so if you were looking for something different, you're not going to find it here, but what you will find is an absolutely incredible, interesting conversation with Dr. David Schwartz, UNLV's chief gambling historian and Las Vegas aficionado. Uh, I'm very excited about this because I first saw David in a documentary about the World Series of Poker, uh, something I've been fascinated with since I was a wee little tyke. Uh, my grandparents taught me how to play poker. We used pennies and I think peanuts. Uh, not, not big steaks, obviously, um, for those of you familiar with peanuts. So it, it was a lot of fun, and, and I love the game. We played a lot of weird wild cards. So as you get into like... Um, you know, uh, Texas Hold'em, it's a classic, the Cadillac of poker, as they call it. When you get into games like that, uh, game home games with wild cards and funky rules, uh, those have kind of fallen way out of fashion, but those are the games I played with my grandmother, love them. Uh, kind of like the whole idea of gambling, this idea that you could you know, predict the future and you were betting money on it, whether it was just a gut feeling or you put tons of hours into analytics. Uh, I just love this idea. love the concept of casinos, the culture of casinos. I thought they were really cool. Uh, When I was 18 out of high school, I wanted to go work at a casino, the Empress Casino, which was a riverboat casino in Joliet, Illinois, right around where I grew up. I was too young at the time. Then when I went to college and became 21, then the job that I wanted was for 18 and under, even though you had to be 21 to gamble. So it just wasn't my time to work at a casino, unfortunately. But nonetheless, now that I'm older, I can go to them. I collect uh, $1 poker chips from every every casino that I've gambled in. So, you know, kind of live it that way. Probably past my prime as a pit boss, but I don't think I uh, would be very good at that anyway anyway. Um, and I love dealing but I don't think I can do it professionally so what do I do I'm gonna to talk to a gambling expert and luckily I have one right in front of me because I have traveled to Sin City itself Las Vegas to talk to Dr. David Schwartz so let's get right into this you're kind of the gambling history ace uh, you live in Las Vegas which is the center of the whole thing mm-hmm. uh, what kind of got you into that because it's kind of a unique gambling is kind of a very unique phenomenon Vegas is obviously the the kingdom of it what got you interested in becoming the expert in this
1: watching them blow up old hotels in atlantic city what got me into this yeah i grew up in atlantic city right when they legalized casinos and they started blowing up all those great old hotels and building these big new concrete buildings and i wondered as a kid why why would they do that why what was the power of casinos that would make people do that and that's really how i got into this
0: so just that's really so. Why were they blowing up old casinos? Was it just um, was there like a kind of an evolution going on, or what was the real reason for that?
1: Well, the old hotels were pretty decayed by that point. You know, they legalized casinos in 1976. Most of them had been built, maybe even in the 1900s before the 1920s. So they were pretty old, and wow. some of them they saved and renovated, but. Many of the other ones they blew up it's, it's pretty you know when you're a little kid watching stuff blow up is pretty interesting so <laughs> Yeah,
0: that was kind of the that was the hook right there I think. It leaves quite a mark well, yeah. you know And it's funny because as we get into this they did a lot of that around here There's even building going on now, you know, Vegas has gone through lots of changes uh, And I think you know because one of the questions I want to ask you is what's the draw? Because There seems to be almost a hardwired draw to gamble you know, into our DNA. I think in your book you talk about um, some macaw, uh, macaque monkeys that they were, it was kind of a, a study that was set up um, and they even went after fruit that they thought may possibly have more juice uh, than ones that they knew what they were going to get. So it's, you know, very interesting how it's kind of hardwired in.
1: Yeah, it is, you know, and it's something, like you said, not just humans, but even other primates are right. apparently really into gambling. Yeah. So the person who could figure out how to you know, offer chim- chimpanzees roulette or something would probably make a killing. <laughs> why?
0: So why do you think that is? What do you think it is like from a, I know you're not a biologist, <laughs> but let's just pretend for a second. Yeah. What do you think is kind of, what is the evolutionary advantage to gambling, do you think? I think it's all about risk-taking. I think that
1: When you look back at evolution, people and groups that didn't take risks probably died because they didn't do anything new. And when the climate changed or conditions changed, they couldn't adapt. So I think it has to do with that. And I think we're just conditioned to be very – into risk taking, mm-hmm. and we don't have that in everyday life. So I think gambling is an attempt to kind of replicate that.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, I think you might be onto something because I think part of evolving is taking a chance, either on a new environment, especially with human beings, because you know we started out in as far as anthropology goes, <laughs> we started out in one spot and then we went all over the world. So you know, there's people who live in the coldest, desolate parts of the world and the hottest, hottest parts, like you are right now in yeah. Las Vegas. And I think there, there might be something really to that. Um, So with that thought, how far back do you think gambling goes? I think to the dawn of
1: human history. When you look at the really old archaeological sites, a lot of them have gambling related implements hmm. and you know that's what we find in the record you know surely there's a lot of stuff that wasn't in the record that's out there too so i think it's pretty old
0: hmm. so i mean this could date back even to like when Og and grog would kind of have like a side bet on how many women they could conk over the head with their club essentially like caveman times
1: yeah you know and it could probably it could be probably they started well hey look we'll decide who which way we go to hunt or something and that eventually ramps up in other stuff
0: so what, um, what are the f- earliest forms that we've found of gambling and gambling instruments? There's a lot of very old dice that are made out of
1: animal bones, particularly the ankle bones of goats and sheep. And these are really popular. You find them going pretty far back, pretty far back. You know, As, you, as the technology advances, you start to get dice made out of ivory and bone. Mm-hmm. Well ground bone that are a little bit more sophisticated. But going back pretty far, you
0: find those. And I liked in your book, because you said it's huckle bone, yeah. which is kind of turned into knuckle, knuckle bone, bone. Yeah. which is kind of interesting, because I had no idea. That was really fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting how gambling seems to like to take...
0: Ordinary things put a different name on it just to make it a little bit confusing for everybody else. And they still do that today. <laughs> it's how it's how the house gets the advantage. It is. Uh, you know, and you mentioned the ivory. It's funny because, you know, you talk about the bones. And essentially, if I understand it correctly, the old huckle bones that were used, it essentially had, I think, its four sides that it could land on and in order to get it to land on all six, they smoothed it out, but that would be uneven, right? Yeah, well, eventually they did have the cubicle dice, which were six sides. The original
1: huckle bones, or knuckle bones, as they were known, would roll on to four sides. It would end up in one of the four sides.
0: Um, and what I love about this, and, and then I wanna get into this incredible story that you start the book off with, because I think, I actually wanted to start with that, because I think <laughs> that that really sets the tone for the modern era. But one thing I just found fascinating that I've talked to you about, I've done episodes on divination, tarot cards, mm-hmm. um, all that kind of stuff, and it's really interesting. I had no idea that a lot of gambling started off at, at, as divination. How, what, 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 what happened there? Basically, it went from using the
1: unknown to try to find out what God or the gods wanted to just using the unknown to win money. That's pretty much how it happened, I think.
0: Well, so what were some of the examples um, that, that people that were originally divination that were turned into uh, gambling?
1: So for example, let's say you were Joshua, leader of the Israelites, cross into the land of Canaan and you have to decide who gets which land. Okay. And well, if, there's only so much good land around, so you don't really want to have to make that choice because then you're going to be undermined and somebody right. will overthrow
0: you. Right, right, so you yeah.
1: basically have each tribe roll bones or whatever and then say, hey, go take it up with God. It's God's will. You know, kind of like drawing the short straw, you uh-huh. know, all those – Things which I don't know if people have actually done that, but they do it a lot in old movies, (laughs) right? (laughs) So, that kind of thing where, like, basically, this problem is beyond human agency, we can't do anything here, either for political reasons or moral reasons, we can't make a choice. Yeah, let's just make it random, right? And that could be the will of God or whoever, you know. You go from that, another example is they would cast lots when they captured a city, and they had a lot of good stuff. So instead of the soldiers fighting over the booty or whatever you want to call it, they would say... booty's a great name. I like that. Just cast cast lots for it and let whoever decide. And it's pretty... (laughs) It's not that big of a step from doing that, conquering a city, casting lots over the booty, to just getting bored and saying, hey, I'll bet you a dollar this
0: comes up heads.
1: (laughs) It's kind (laughs) of the same thing.
0: It's an extension. Well, you know what's fascinating about that that particular part is this kind of sent me on a whole... Uh, I don't want to say esoteric voyage, um, but as I was like re going over the notes and and going over the the way you phrase it in the book, there is a really thin line between divination, uh, essentially divination and gambling, mm-hmm. because it's it's really you could almost split humanity into whether you believe that it's divine. Uh, divine intervention that adjusts it and that your path is kind of set by that, or complete random luck, and some people are beneficiaries of it and some people are not, but it's completely random. I think people really look at the universe in one of those two ways. I think you're right, and you definitely see a lot of that. You know, some gamblers are very fatalistic that way, where everything Uh, is meant to happen. Yeah. So I think there's
1: definitely some evidence of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really weird that when you think about it. One of the there's there's this little thing in, in your book. I, this is a gambling book, by the way. So what we're about to talk about is a little strange. But you bring up so many different. I'm going to call them mancies, which are basically w- forms of divination. Oh yeah, <laughs> I've never heard of any of these. And I look into yeah. this stuff. I like this stuff. But let me see if I get these right. So there's ooh mancy, mm-hmm. which is using broken eggs. Yeah, eggshells. So how did that work? Again, like you telies? know, I,
1: I think a lot of this is just you kind of need to do something that's credible enough but also <laughs> impenetrable enough so that nobody really else understands it. Right, right, right. And you go, oh, yeah, it came out really great. You yeah. Know, and a lot of it is going to be kind of like the fortune teller for the king where it's better be a pretty good fortune. Otherwise, right. you'll yeah. be replaced. So I think a lot of it goes back to that. But they
0: definitely had a system. We And it's funny because... I think you're right. There's a sweet spot between, and this is true today of even like technologies and stuff, right? Like, like where's the sweet spot where people think they could possibly understand it but the nuances are far beyond their understanding, and only one or two people can be experts at it.
1: Yeah, well, it's like anything—like reading the liver of sure, sure. You know? yeah. So, all right. Well, what's gonna happen? Well, let's kill a sheep and look at its liver. Like, wow, it's the freakiest liver I've ever seen. Yeah. we better not go sail.
0: Right, right, right. Or so you don't <laughs> sail and you live. Or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it goes a lot of ways. Well, and it's so so there's so there's that with there's broken eggs. And then you have, these are the, you know, we're going to go into the bodily functions here, but (laughs) copromancy and euromancy. Yeah. Which, see, these kind of make sense if you're looking at sympathetic magic, because the first one's obviously poop, and then there's number one and number two, let's say that. So you're basically taking it from your body, which mm-hmm. you could make the sympathetic magic argument that that would tell your fortune or at least the health of your immediate future.
1: <laughs> yes. And it's kind of funny. Yesterday, in my History 101 class, we were talking about this. We were talking about the Salem witch trials and witch mm. cake which was basically if they thought you were yeah. bewitched, you would pee. Yeah. They'd make the pee into a cake and feed it to a dog. And if the dog freaked out, <laughs>
0: that meant you were definitely bewitched. So right. it's the same thing
1: where you could use this to try to tell the future, I
0: guess. That is so interesting. Yeah. I, um, the Salem witch trials are fascinating to me. I did an <laughs> episode on it, and and I remember the witch cake was like <laughs> yeah. such an interesting idea. I mean, even the drowning where they throw people into the river. And if you drowned, yes. you you got you still died, but you went to heaven like knowing that yes. you've been saved. It's ridiculous. Um so let's uh, so let's talk about this great story that you started the book out with, uh, and so I spent time on the East Coast in Boston. Um, well, uh, here I'm getting ahead of the story. So can you tell me the story um, of the the Pequ? I'm saying this correctly. The Pequot and the Mohegan tribes. Yes.
1: So the Pequots have basically Pequot. angered all the tribes in the region, and there's a Pequot. War.
0: 1637. Let's yeah. set the stage.
1: Yeah. So there's the Pequot War. And the other tribes, in conjunction with the Puritan colonists, get together and say, we're going to destroy the Pequots, whose name, ironically enough, means destroyer. Hmm. So we're going to destroy them. And they pretty much march on the Pequot village and kill everybody they can. The tribe is, there's a couple of people survive, but the tribe pretty much disappears unofficially. Then the 20th century, some of the survivors, one of the survivors in particular, Skip Hayward, Starts seeking recognition for his tribe and reestablishing the tribe. And it's very difficult. Then, thanks to several legal developments, they have the right to run casino gaming on the tribal land. And this leads to this huge resurgence where now the um, Mashantucket Pequots have Foxwoods, which is one of the biggest casinos in the world.
0: Well, let's let's unpack that a little bit cuz that was a very cliff notes version of <laughs> what I think is a nuanced and incredible story that really tells it sets up how kind of reservation gaming started but also how casinos have kind of really become a financial institution in some places that really need it. Because what's great about that is, the, so everyone gangs up on the they, uh the Puritans and the Mohegans team up, they kill their leader, and the Mohegans give the Puritans the head. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, the, uh, as, as a token of friendship, <laughs> So they're granted this land as a reservation mm-hmm. in 1838. So over the next like four decades, or f- I'm sorry, four centuries, they dwindled down to I think a handful of people. Yeah. like this is an incredible story because it was this once mighty tribe. They're down to I think three families, and if they were ever to give up that land, they lose the land forever. Right, yeah. It, forever. Yeah. And so then lot like casino lotteries um, had, I'm sorry, um, reservation lotteries had become very popular, I Mm -hmm. believe. And then is that how that kind of? Well, it starts with bingo. Okay. So it starts with bingo. Right, 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 bingo. So
1: here's how the bingo, to kind of get into the bingo. So here's how it started. So bingo in the 1920s started to be popular in the United States, really took off in the Great Depression. Pretty much it's for charitable organizations. A lot of churches had bingo. In the 70s, some of the Indian tribes said, well, we need help too. So why don't we have bingo? and then one of the tribes, a Seminole tribe down in Florida and a couple others around the country get the idea of saying, well hey, look, we have sovereignty. The state says there's a maximum, let's say $500 jackpot. We don't have to listen to that. Right. So they start offering $50,000 jackpot. Bingo people who own the bingo halls who can't get very upset. There's a whole lawsuit. There's actually the sheriff's department reads the bingo, which I mean, you can only imagine what that would have been like. Right, you know, yeah. SWAT team raiding the bingo. <laughs> Again, people, the, the money's at stake. People right. do sometimes irrational things. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And it ends up eventually, all these various cases go to the Supreme Court, which say tribes do have the right to offer any kind of gambling that a state has with no restrictions.
0: Well, and that so, that, and that's great because that sets it up. Because then, those, so the Pequots start this; they, they create Foxwoods, becomes one of their biggest casinos in the world, and then the Mohegans, their enemies, Mm -hmm. create Mohegan's son, which is So there's even like a rivalry that continues on to the ages because their casino is right down the street Um, I I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, it's in the same city that is named after the person who killed the leader of the Pequots Is that right? In Yuccasville? Yes, is that right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's, you know, there's historic, even with the, the land that it's on, the exact place that it's located, uh, and these two tribes are battling it out today, except over, um, essentially over white man's money, which I guess is the should be the the battlefield uh, of the future for them, right?
1: Yeah, and they're also working together. So when a casino opened up in a nearby state, they combined forces to say, well, let's open up a casino in our corner of Connecticut to try to take. Some of the people would be playing in that casino in the other state, so right. it just goes to show what when there's money at stake, people can get very friendly.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's very true. Um, so let's talk a little bit about. Um, You know, we're we're talking about Native American culture. They had some really interesting beliefs behind gambling, and it was almost ritualized for them, which I really like that aspect. How did that work?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too, because it was very in tune with the rituals, and a lot of it was very time-bound. So there are certain kinds of gambling you would do at day, certain kinds at night, which might seem really crazy to us, but if you look at some of our customs— Theres certain clothes we wear during the day, and there's certain clothes we wear at night, at least for formal wear, right, you know? right? so it's 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 kind of like that. And really, a lot of it was tying the gambling act to this bigger sort of metaphysical drama of, you uh, know, we're not uh. just gambling, we're recreating something that happened, you know, a legend that happened. We're recreating right. that. Oh, and it also is we're doing this communally. It's a way to bond it's a way to, right. to come together
0: yeah no, and I love that because there's themes behind everything there's a you know there's a light, like you said light and dark mm-hmm. summer versus winter um, you know good versus evil plays out here it's very dualistic uh, and I like I like that there's a theme behind what they're doing because it's not just about taking money or taking things from each other or even as a social game like mm-hmm. poker or anything but there's real meaning behind it I like that
1: yeah and I think that is what sets it apart. And that's one of the reasons why it's not really ironic, but I think it's fitting that gambling is one of the forms of self-determination and economic development for a lot of Indian nations right. um, because that this has been what has sustained them for so long.
0: Right. It's very rooted in their tradition. Yeah. So let's let's quickly talk about the history of gambling as far as um, it is in Europe. Cause I think it started in Europe. Well, not really started in Europe, but it kind of developed in Europe. Um tell me a little bit about how that kind of worked.
1: It developed in a lot of places, I think. Europe was one of them, but also Asia, you know. So Europe was and it all depends on how far far back we want to go. You sure, know? yeah, yeah. If we're so if we're starting with dice, they are in the Middle East, Mesopotamia, Middle East. That's where we get dice from and they filter all over the world and you find them all over the world. Playing cards develop much later. So dice are basically from around prehistory, going back very, very far. Playing cards are only about the year 1,100, much Mm. more recent, and they develop in Korea and China. Mm. And then it takes them about almost 300 years to go from Asia to end up in Italy, and then they spread all over Europe very quickly.
0: No kidding. Now, when n- we mentioned before, tar- tarot cards were an initial form of gambling. Mm-hmm. The tarot cards are very similar to a deck of playing cards. Yeah. And a deck of playing cards has a lot of very, because I know lots of people who will do card readings, that, you know, because there's 52 weeks in a year, 52 cards in a deck, there's 13, you know, it's mm-hmm. very moon centered. Yeah. Um, how did all of that kind of evolve? I know that I'm asking a big question because it's like yeah. from the Chinese to the tarot cards to the playing card. How did all that evolve? It's fascinating. Well, it's really interesting because they start out in
1: China and they're almost, I don't want to say cylindrical, but they're very long and thin. Huh. Like a bookmark? Kind of, yeah, but like even longer and thinner. Then they end up in <laughs> India and they're okay. circular. Okay, But that's where they start to kind of look like, yeah, this looks like a playing card because you can see they have pips in them for the numbers and stuff like that and stuff that looks like a king or looks like somebody riding a horse. Then they end up in Persia and Mm -hmm. the Middle East and they start to look a little bit more like what we would expect. And when they make the jump to Italy which is through Alexandria and Istanbul, they make the jump, well, back then it would have been Constantinople. Right. They make the jump to Italy. They still kind of look, they're starting to develop. They're not really sure what the suits should be. Some of them have coins, some of them have hearts, and it takes a while to develop. When they get to France, there's several different variations, but one of them based out of Rouen is what becomes the uh, pack of cards, the deck of cards mm. that is standard today. And that didn't happen until fairly later. So for a while, there's lots of different kinds of cards. Hmm. And there's, you know, tarot deck is one of them.
0: Okay, I see. So, but there, so is there an, evol- like, if we're looking at this like a biologist. So mm-hmm. is there an evolutionary connection between tarot cards and modern day playing cards as they exist today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, de- they definitely have that same ancestor, which was the first deck that came over from uh, the Middle East. And... The tarot cards were just one kind of deck to play a certain kind uh, of game. Uh, got it. Okay. Which was Triomphi, which later became Trump. Which.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> it's all connected here. Yes, <laughs> it is all connected. <laughs>
1: so
0: the leader of the free world yes. is, has yes. its roots in uh, tarot cards. Yeah,
1: I mean that's what Triomphi, which. Developed into that, and basically huh. there, you have the what are now the major arcana, where basically just special kinds of cards you can Got play it. at certain kinds. Oh and, wow! The, that's the minor cool. arcana is basically what is it? Coins, staves, S- swords, staves and swords, and swords and pentacles, which basically is uh, spades. It's, here's an interesting thing. So huh. originally, I think spado in, in Italian means sword. It okay. ends up in England like, oh, it's a spade. Oh wow! And they kind of a lot of it kind of happened like that. And I think the coin changed into a heart. It's they sort of morphed that way. Oh, that's so interesting. But they used to be the same. And yeah, if you go back, there's you know we have German packs of cards that have acorns and ornament stuff. I mean, there's oh, really? lots of different things they used. Yeah. Oh wow! And, it's just, and there are lots of different colors. It's just what happens is it's so they standardize it in the Ruen deck, and it's just so much easier to block print them that that's what be, be, becomes the accepted thing.
0: That's interesting, because I imagine there were probably, with the way you're talking, and I'm just this is just me jumping here, but it's interesting you said the block printing, because I imagine before that they're all handmade, maybe locally produced, mm-hmm. and so everyone put their own little spin on it. Once you mass produce them, now they all look similar. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's basically what makes it easier to play. You know, imagine if every time you pick up a deck of cards, it's hand painted, and you're like, well, <laughs> right. what is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whereas here, you know right away.
0: Right. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, and so then, so in Italy, I believe, they had the first casino called the uh, Rodotti. Rodato. Rodato. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did that come about?
1: Here's how the Rodato started. So you've got people gambling in Italy, and they were gambling a lot. It was illegal, though. So nobles would let would have a little room called a rodato, which means kind of enclosed room, where people would gamble. Right? So you had these in the houses of the nobles, technically illegal. Nobody likes it. Meanwhile, you've got a group of nobles, a family of nobles called called the Barnabots, who were nobles, so they weren't allowed to work, but they were impoverished. So the city
0: was paying them basically just to live. Wait, so there's this was interesting in the books. So I didn't quite yeah. understand it. So there's noble. I thought all nobles had money, but not. They lost their money. Which so, is, but the, yeah. so the family name's important. Is that yes. what it is? Yes. Okay. And okay. they can't
1: take a job like a commoner. But on the other not. hand, you can't let them starve because that doesn't look for Venice and their nobles <laughs> right, are starving. So right, right. the city had to basically pay their expenses. And they kind of got fed up with that and said, you know what? You guys were going to make this Rodato and San Moise place. You guys have the right to run casino games there. Mm-hmm. And they
0: said, fine. And they did it. And they made a lot of money. Well, And what's interesting about that is, th- from what I understand, th- these became so popular that a lot of nobles with money, the wealthy mm-hmm. nobles would come and then lose the fortunes that their generations of families had yes. built up. So essentially it was a wealth transfer from the wealthy to the, so were supposed to formerly wealthy, right? Yeah. Is that kind of how? Yeah,
1: and that was the issue, and that's also the big issue is there's a lot of social disruption involved where yeah. it breaks down those class boundaries. You know, you can come in and everybody wore a mask, so they wouldn't know who you were, so you can Like come eyes in. wide shut kind of stuff? Yeah, like a mask. Huh. Certain hat. Yeah. Which is weird by today's standards, certainly for casino right. security, they would not. <laughs> right. Like yeah. That. Yeah. <laughs> but different times, different yeah. times. Sure. sure. So y- you had this thing where they were upset, not that the nobles were losing money to other nobles, but that lower people socially might be winning the money
0: and they didn't want that.
1: Yeah, and also the money lenders getting involved and sort of getting their hooks into the nobles and you know, right. the nobles of course are innocent. It's not that they're bad financial managers. It's everybody else's fault. Of
0: course, right, right. So so these eventually end and the way the book goes, these you talk about France next. Was there an, yeah. uh, like kind of a movement to France or was France always kind of building up as was there kind of concurrently?
1: France always had and it's interesting, you know, how nations get reputations as gamblers. So today, Australia has reputations people gambling a lot. China mm, certainly that. has the, oh yeah, China certainly has the same reputation. Yeah. Back in the early modern period, France was the nation of gambling degenerates. Wow. And if we think about it, a lot of our games were invented in France, you know? Right. Baccarat, Roulette, Blackjack. You know, these games were all invented there.
0: One of my favorites, Euchre, was was invented there. It's not a gambling game, but I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah,
1: I mean, and they basically, poker, the ancestor of poker came from France. So the French were really huge Mm. gamblers. This is interesting because it kind of plays into England and their history. So after the Restoration, when Charles II comes back from being in France, after Cromwell and all them killed his dad, he comes back and he's been hanging out in France for like 20 years and pretty much gambling and partying the whole time and <laughs> everyone else starts gambling and partying during the restoration and the English moralists say, well this isn't they're not English this is a kind of this French infestation coming upon us right. and certainly no honest Englishman would ever gamble right. when in fact they've been gambling, you know, since the island was settled, right, right? It's always nice to blame someone else, and they blame the French.
0: <laughs> the French infestation. Yeah. Well, and and so, so the French gave us a lot, a lot of the, the the um a lot of the games. They also, after the French Revolution, I found this interesting that the ace became higher than the king. Yes. I love that.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting too because it just shows how gamblers can be very conservative, uh-huh. because we've never had well at least not since 1776, had a king in the United States, but we still use the cards of the Kings, you right. know, they tried Republican playing cards, small R Republican, not not capital R, right. but they tried, you know, non-monarchical Republican playing cards and nobody liked them. But well, what would that be? Like the head of the state Yeah, you Senate, could have a Senator <laughs> and a whatever, which is probably why it wasn't popular. Or you could right. just have
0: something, I mean, it doesn't have to be a King, it could be anything. Right, it could be a president, but then yeah. you're putting the president in the King spot, lots of weird yeah. stuff going but on. But it here.
1: could, I mean, you know, it, it could just be a horse and a dog and whatever doesn't even have to be people but they like they like that
0: yeah it's those tradition to it yeah so and then, and then from there um, you mentioned that there's this there's like a spa casino that kind of comes yes. in after that which i like that because that feels like the ancestor to it's like reading your book it was interesting to see how history kind of repeats itself because i feel like on the strip now that's what's going on is it's like essentially bathhouses resorts casinos right
1: Correct. And it's the same exact idea, which is basically this. So imagine that you are the landgrave of some small principality somewhere, you know, on the Rhine River, and you've got nothing. You know, your cousin is really rich and has Hamburg or something like that and is doing great. You've got absolutely nothing, but you still want to be the landgrave. You still want to be a count, whatever you are. Nobody's going to come to your place. There's just nothing there. So you let somebody come in and open up a casino and pretty much it's a resource-poor jurisdiction, uses their political independence to offer what its neighbors won't offer. As France and then eventually Prussia ban gambling, this becomes very lucrative for them. And eventually, they're scattered all over. It ends up, the last one in Europe ends up being Monte Carlo, hmm. which is why Monte
0: Carlo was so famous. Wow, and and so, so Monte Carlo, um, What's a little bit about their history? How did they kind of develop, and then where are they now? They're
1: interesting. It's the same thing. The Grimaldi family had Monaco, very resource-poor little principality. They didn't want to give up being nobility, so they said finally had somebody come in and offer gambling. And the first three people they had do it actually failed at it. Hmm. They couldn't make money. They then hired a guy named Monsieur Blanc, Francois Blanc, who was incredibly successful, had already been successful in gambling in other places in the Rhine, and basically brought all of his marketing savvy and probably bribery of French officials mm-hmm. to Monaco. You know, one of the first things he did is the section where the casino was had been called Les Peluge, like the caves, which is huh. kind of disreputable. Oh, I like that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he renames it Monte Carlo for Prince Charles i huh. say we'll name it for you and then it'll have to be successful because your right. name is on it right So he sort of you know he very smart guy, very smart guy and yeah, you know funded a lot of charities in Paris yeah. and did all kinds of stuff and then it just so happened that the French government built a railroad
0: line. Down
1: to him. So he was not above that kind of manipulation. Sure.
0: Well, and as we'll see, that there's a lot of that, a lot of wheel greasing that goes on in the gambling world. Now, before we move away from Europe and into America, which I think things get really interesting, I gotta talk about the Earl of Montague and the sandwich. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about that and how that kind of came to be.
1: This is just one of the truisms of gambling, is that gamblers are completely obsessed with their gambling. If you look at a casino, you see a lot of people who are really focused on what they're doing, Mm -hmm. you know, to the extent that literally you've had fires break out in casinos and people have not wanted to leave the gambling floor. You you put so much money into
0: that slot machine. You you can't leave.
1: I mean, but like I remember when there was a fire at the Monte Carlo and there was a picture of the poker room and you could see a TV set. And on the TV set was the Monte Carlo on fire with flames coming out of the roof, and people are just there playing. It's like, I would have left the building. At that point, you know, once I can see the flames on TV, right, I would have right. left. But, you know, that's just the attraction. Uh, the Earl of Sandwich was so devoted to his gambling, he did not want to have to leave the table to eat. Right, uh, it Couldn't really do finger food that well because his hands would get dirty. So, all right, right, we'll take this, we'll put bread on it, and we'll eat it. Yeah, and, that's and then where the sandwich comes. From. And
0: other people said, "I'll have what the sandwich yeah, is I'll having." I'll have or, or, the
1: Earl of Sandwich special. Right, <laughs> the sandwich
0: I love. Well, and it's funny because again, history repeats itself. Big fan of the World Series of Poker, mm-hmm. and so you, you, I dare you to find a more focused bunch. But it's <laughs> yeah. funny because they have people coming around giving them massage. No <laughs> one's leaving the table, yeah. right? Foods being brought to them, massages, whatever it is. They're there for hours. Same thing. Nothing changes, is what I'm saying. Yeah,
1: and like when I worked in a casino, I. If I worked in the poker room, I would work my shift and then leave, and then 16 hours later come back and see the same people sometimes wearing the same clothes. Wow. And,
0: yeah, there's definitely a lot of that. So what were you doing in a a casino? Was that – did that come after? Obviously, after the Atlantic City explosion. Where was that on your? Journey? Yeah,
1: so that was. A, I worked in Atlantic City. I did a couple of things. Uh, first job I had in a casino was in the ice cream parlor, serving ice cream That's to the people. Best job. In my that was kind of opinion. fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, next job I had was Mr. Peanut. And what you selling. did? You dress up. I was up? physically Mr. Peanut. Yeah. So, so you had I was the whole an thing in that? <laughs> of Mr. Peanut. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Did you have the monocle? Yeah, it was a shell. It was a plastic shell that went over. So yeah. Oh wow! Uh, pretty much. All it was just arms and legs and the <laughs> hand sticking out of that thing and the, the monocle. <laughs> it was
0: pretty hot, I imagine. It actually wasn't that
1: bad. It was really? kind of cross ventilated. It was pretty okay, nice. Okay, so That good. was that was at the Tropicana, and then I did security at the Trump Taj Mahal, and then later surveillance. But when I was in the floor, it was security.
0: Wow! So you've kind of you have a really well rounded kind of look at casino, both from the front and from the back, really. Yeah, yeah. I that, mean, it's a, a, it's a perfect way to kind of attack this thing. Um, from an educational standpoint. What, from the history, this is I found this to be fascinating because if we're talking about gambling. Obviously, gambling debts comes into this. Mm-hmm. How do people pay gambling debts? You make the argument, mm-hmm. I find, find very fascinating, that Pennsylvania may have been the largest gambling debt ever paid. How, how did how you come to that conclusion?
1: This is interesting. This is another crossover with my history 101 class, because we yeah. were just talking about this yesterday, too, I think. Okay. Wow. So William Penn's dad, we all know William, William Penn is the guy in the City Hall statue in Philly. Yeah. William Penn's dad was one of the gambling and drinking cronies of Charles II. Okay. And supposedly Charles II owed him a ton of money. On his deathbed, William Penn's dad said, look, just take care of my son, okay? And Charles II promised to do that. Fast forward a couple years later, William Penn is a member of the Quakers, who were a des- despised sect in England, you know, although, or maybe because they were pacifists and mm. egalitarian and all that. Right. And were literally, they were hanged in Massachusetts. Yeah. yeah. Sh- so they were really not liked. William Penn happened to be a Quaker. King Charles gave him the right to settle Pennsylvania, which you could tell was going to be a very lucrative colony, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it would be a haven for the Quakers. And it's been alleged that the reason why he gave this unpopular sect this really rich land was to settle that gambling debt to William Penn's dad.
0: Wow. I love that. And it's also, it's a prime piece of real estate. I I would imagine at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, that must have been one of the largest pieces of land that had, had been given up until that point, right?
1: Yeah, and at that by that point, you know, Virginia's already settled, Massachusetts is already settled. You've got Georgia down in the south as another proprietary colony, but that's sort of basically just, well, let's we want to keep the Spanish in Florida away from South Carolina and create a buffer there, so we'll give you guys Georgia and you can use it to settle convicts, which is what they did at first. But this really was kind of unprecedented.
0: That's amazing. So that essentially was the first instance of gambling uh, you could make that argument in the United States, right? Um, no, although they've been gambling here for a long time. The Native Americans, course. Oh, that's of course, true. Okay, right. But also right, right.
1: the first, even the first Virginians came over. It's really interesting. So Jamestown, which kind of had some really rough times at the yeah. beginning, Definitely. literally the governor is complaining, the people are bowling in the streets <laughs> and like gambling on it, and they're not growing food. So like literally, because Jamestown, everybody said they were gentlemen, gentlemen don't work. Yeah. We hang out and gamble, so we're not going to start working now because if we do that we won't be gentlemen. Right. We'd rather be a dead gentleman than a living person <laughs> who knows how to grow their own food.
0: <laughs> right, of course. Uh men don't change. We've got the same <laughs> feelings. Uh it's funny. It's history repeats itself. So, what when did gambling first come to the United States kind of as we know it today?
1: As we know it, it developed slowly. Horse racing was one of the earliest Mm. forms, and that was another thing that became a passion in Virginia and on the frontier. Uh, Andrew Jackson staked everything, even the clothes he owned on a horse race, and he was also a huge gambler. Did he win that race? Mm -hmm. Um... I believe he won one of them, but one of them, one of the times he did lose. Lost literally the shirt off his bag. Yes. Wow. Hopefully he had a backup somewhere. <laughs> right. But, you know, th- there's definitely a lot of that tied into it. Lotteries became very important early on, too. So horse racing was there. Lotteries were there early on. It was different from it is today where you have a lottery commission and it's a state-run organization. Basically, the way a lottery worked is you need to raise money for something. The state... Tell or the colony, colonial government says, fine, we'll give you a charter to run a lottery. You then hire a private promoter who runs the lottery for you and hopefully gives you the money. Hopefully. Hopefully, sometimes they didn't, huh. which is why there are a lot of scandals. And a lot of the early colleges and universities got funding through lotteries. They would use lotteries to you know, build walls around cities, ransom captives and all, all kinds of interesting things.
0: Well, there's also a couple stories in your book that you mention of people getting around the gambling aspect of lotteries by basically selling tickets for things instead of money.
1: Yeah. And this is also, if you imagine, you know, back then, of course, there was not as much liquid cash around. Even if you did have all this cash, it it didn't circulate. So they would use lotteries to do things like sell houses. So Hmm. how are you going to sell a house if there's no, you can't really do a mortgage if nobody wants to do that back then. Right. Uh, Banking isn't as powerful. So let's have a lottery. And we'll just collect all this money, and one person will walk away. So they did that.
0: So essentially, you'd find like 100,000 people to give a dollar, mm-hmm. and then one person would get the house. Yeah. I mean, they did that. They, they did that. I mean, I'm not going to say they did that all the time, but that right. was certainly one of the ways they did it. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> um, so as the history comes in, Louisiana, I didn't realize this, is, was kind of the center of gambling for a long period yeah. of time.
1: Yeah, Louisiana, you could make the argument that New Orleans is the American capital of gambling and not Las Vegas. Now is that because of the French influence? Oh, definitely the French were big. That was definitely the French influence. You know, this is where craps is developed. This mm-hmm. is where poker
0: is developed. And this is also where there's the first legal casino in the United States. Hmm. What? How did that kind of come about? Was it similar to Vegas where like the state kind of decided that we're going to do gambling here? Or was it still illegal in the United States at the time?
1: It was illegal most places. New Orleans decided we'll legalize a casino. We'll legalize a couple of casinos in New Orleans and we'll tax it. We'll use it to support schools and support a hospital. Which they did. It went well. They legalized more of them. Then they decided to outlaw them all. Hmm. Then they brought them back and outlawed them again a couple times and then late 19th century they permanently permanently outlawed them until the 20th century and they finally brought it back.
0: Well, it's interesting because when you start looking at some of the early history, because I think it went from Louisiana, then Chicago was big, and then mm-hmm. New York, and, and so it kind of moved around, essentially. Uh, it's interesting when you look at the clientele, because I think the Louisiana... Uh, a lot of these early casinos were good for kind of like your rough riding kind of ga- cowboyish types, I guess we would think of. And not really like the big fish, the whales that people look for today, big wealthy gamblers, right? Yeah,
1: there were some of the places. So a man named John Davis ran one that was cater- catered more towards wealthy people. Most of them were very bare bones. You just came in there and gambled and left.
0: Hmm. They didn't want you to stick around. Didn't want you to stick around. No entertainment, no pen & Teller, no big no, restaurants. No.
1: A lot of them were actually crooked. They cheated people. Huh. And the last thing you want people doing when they're getting cheated is sticking around and watching everybody getting cheated.
0: So <laughs> the idea was get them in, get them out. Well, you know, and that's an interesting segue because riverboats, I, I love the segment on riverboats because the, it was fascinating. The people who it was almost I imagine that there was kind of like a parallel evolution between carnivals and riverboat casinos, because you had like the same type of people looking for marks to bring them in and kind of fleece them as a group. There's a huge relationship between the riverboat gamblers who become
1: the itinerant gamblers who then go onto trains. You know, they start right, on the riverboats, right, yeah. they go onto the trains, and a lot of them eventually end up in carnival sideshows.
0: That's amazing. So there was a connection yeah, there. Oh,
1: there's a total connection. Okay. And like a lot, a lot of the So stuff like that big six wheel, that big wheel, is a carnival game. Right. The Wheel Wheel of Fortune, The Wheel of Fortune, yeah. yeah, And they call them carnival games. And again, on the carnival, they're usually crooked. Yeah. You
0: know, today, they're regulated by the state, so they're honest. (laughs) Well, I remember, I didn't know this, but you were, uh, in the book, you talk about how the Wheel of Fortune, I think there are two different ways to kind of basically rig it. One is to have little needles that would tell the ball where to go, right? Yeah. And then the other one is basically the person spinning it can control the speed with their foot Mm -hmm. and get it to slow down where it wants to, right? Yeah. And so these kind of techniques were – the idea, at least, was used on riverboats to kind of use three or four people, you know, almost like a good cop, bad cop kind of (laughs) thing, right? To kind of trick people on riverboats.
1: Yeah. You know, so basically if you want to run a gambling scam in the antebellum – on the rivers of antebellum America, here's what you do. You are the gambler. You are probably dressed in all black. You've got a really fancy watch and a really fancy diamond pin and some nice jewelry.
0: Like an 1830s can, pimp, really. Yeah, which I don't know why much. they wanted to bring attention to themselves. But what's because the question?
1: Because it, it was the kind of thing where everybody knew that they would cheat you, but you thought you could get away with it.
0: Oh, so that actually makes so much what sense. What
1: you would do is you would have, you know, and it was kind of you had to test yourself. Some of them are like that. Some of them dressed very conservatively. Uh-huh. But most of them tended to, to also have the jewelry because it's something they convert into right. cash really easily. Oh,
0: that, yeah. Like just so, drop and, it on the table. Like and you yeah. seen the movies dropping your, your keys into the yeah. like, poker pot. Or
1: if you get arrested, you could bribe the guard with it or sure, something like that. So right. It's pretty easy, to, pretty easy to do. Yeah. Uh, basically, what you need is you need some kind of confederate, somebody who's going to be sort of undercover, who will win a lot of money. And if they're playing something like three card Monty, they'll actually right. mark the card and say, look, uh, this dealer's so stupid, he doesn't know what he's doing. Right. And he'll win a lot of money. Then everybody else comes up and puts their money in and of course it reverses and they lose. Right. And you can't really complain that you were cheated because you were trying to cheat them. Right. It's actually brilliant when you think about it. It's human psychology. You know, yeah. and even today, the three card Monty thing, it's funny. Like even today you see people doing three card Monty out on the Las Vegas Strip. Really? Yes. Where literally there are casinos with more games than you could count. And they still have people are still going around with the three card money. That's amazing. And people are still playing it. That's really? an incredible thing, yeah.
0: You know, it's funny. There was this really brief period where I had heard about three-card money, and I knew that there were so many different techniques that you could get to trick people as to where the card was going to be <laughs> that for a small period of time, I really wanted to learn how to do that. And it's really interesting because there's so many cool different techniques. And one, since we're talking about riverboats, one of the guys that you mentioned is George Duvall, who is arguably the greatest riverboat um, gambler. Yeah. And he wrote a, like the book on how to do this, right?
1: Yeah, and one of my favorite things about researching this book is reading the books by former Did you gamblers. read that one? I did, yeah. It's just interesting. I think it's 40 years in the Mississippi. Yeah. I think that was his book. But there's this whole genre of sort of confessions by gamblers. And they're always very careful to tell you, this is what you absolutely should never do. Ah. But they're obviously telling you how to cheat other people. But it's always right. in the, phrased in the way of, like, whatever you do, do not Right. Attempt this because you will not like it and
0: you will you will be miserable even though you're making so much money. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of them, I, I believe. Well, let's talk about, um, was he the one who, um, there was one great gambler who ended up betting all of his money on Confederate bonds and then died penniless. But yes. he was a great, who was that? Yeah, that
1: was, who was that? I haven't written down. Skaggs. Skaggs. That so was Skaggs. Um, he was the one, so he was one of the ones who dressed, people called him the gambling parson because he dressed so conservatively. You know, huh. dressed like a churchman and would just just went around the country cheating people all over. Then he trained teams of people to go around cheating people and they were called Skaggs patent dealers. It was like patent medicine. So it was like franchising. What Pretty much doing. he franchised, yeah. And basically they went around the country cheating people. It's kind of karma, maybe, and this happens to a lot of these gamblers. So he had a ton of money. He owned plantations and stuff. During the Civil War, he decided to buy a whole bunch of Confederate bonds and, of course, ended up losing
0: it all. Well, I mean, it's kind of that's, you know, if we're talking about the fate versus luck. I mean, he kind of luck ran out. I mean, he kind of karma evened itself out is what I want to say.
1: Yeah, and you see this happening a lot with gamblers. The other thing that's interesting is you have some of them, like John Morrissey, make a ton of money from gambling, yeah. and then they decide to play the stock market and they get cleaned out.
0: Right. He, You know, I'm glad you brought him up because he's a fascinating character. Starts out as a boxer. Yeah. Um. Makes it turn somehow turns that into. Did, was he an enforcer? How did that switch into gambling? Because then he also becomes a senator, the first mm-hmm. gambling professional gambler senator. Yeah. How does his story play out? So if you've ever seen the movie Gangs of New York, yeah.
1: Basically, he is Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Okay. That is pretty much him from okay. the original Herbert Asbury book, Gangs of New York. That's pretty much him. Okay. So he grows up really rough and tumble. Basically, becomes heavyweight champion of the world by saying. You know, they obviously didn't have like, you know, World Boxing Association, right. those things basically just says, I'm the champion. If if you don't think I am, come and beat me. And he was very Muhammad Ali-ish before Muhammad Ali in a yeah. way. You know, and like nobody could beat him. So it, what's really interesting is he got he had the he had the nickname Old Smoke, which he got because in a bar fight, somebody basically threw him on a coal burner and he literally caught on fire and finished the fight. Wow. and his back was literally smoking from being burned <laughs> and he still won the fight. Wow. So he he's an interesting guy. Goes into dealing Faro, which was Faro F A R O was the most biggest game back then. Goes into dealing that. Sometimes people accuse him of cheating, that doesn't last too long cuz he says, "Fine, I'll take care of you." Uh, <laughs> ends up owning shares in a lot of the a lot of the gambling halls in New York and also since he's in the gang and since he's a gang, he becomes very important politically. Because you need people to vote a certain way, you're going to go to the biggest, toughest people and say, right. "Make sure the people vote this way." So right. again, this is in the this is in the movie Gangs of New York, and it's pretty well documented Tammany Hall right. and yeah. that sort of corruption. So he becomes very, very important in that and becomes very wealthy and very influential and is named a senator. Right. I think a representative. Not sure which one now.
0: Yeah, but he, but he, he yeah. represents you know represents the state in yeah. the legislature. Yeah. Um, it's just he's a, a fascinating story. I really like. Really is, him. yeah.
1: And he, you know, again, he was one of the ones who was so successful and able to negotiate all that, but lost all of his money in the stock market.
0: Yeah, I, it's funny how things even out like that. Like yeah. that's it's really interesting uh, how that works. Um, let's move on to the Wild West because that is my favorite period. A lot of great gambling stuff going on there. Um, there was uh, a couple of great gamblers, but you have this great quote that running a gambling house was the easiest way to mine for gold uh, in this town because, in this time period, because a lot of people were going and prospecting, and the people who own the hardware stores actually made more money yeah, than the prospectors. they did. Uh, and that, that's, I love that, that connection. But how, was, how did gambling kind of evolve as the Wild West, a land without law and order?
1: All right, so if you're a miner, you're going to be spending all day doing backbreaking work you don't you know you're already predisposed to have a risky you know high tolerance for risk because it's pretty risky going out and mining and when you actually do make money and want to do something with it yes you can go to the brothel but you can only spend so much money there gambling is the other big thing that people spend money on drinking is the third so it's gambling drinking prostitution pretty much soaks up all the money that
0: isn't lost to the hardware store owners. <laughs> well, it, it's amazing because they worked so hard to get these gold nuggets, and then it was it, the money evaporated. I mean, like, because yeah. you had all these people that were, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of vultures, but they were really just they were really just offering a service, and then the people paid for that service. They didn't steal it from them. But it's just amazing, you know. There's this quote that I love that a fool and his money are soon parted, <laughs> and I think that that was really kind of true in the Wild West. It was, and even. A hardworking
1: person in the money is soon parted just because, all right? well, you need necessities of right. life. Well, here's what here's what it costs. If you don't like it, go home.
0: Yeah. Stop mining. Right. <laughs> right. And at this time, there were a lot of people, you know, obviously the riverboats, people could be professional gamblers. But on the Wild West, I think there's a lot of really cool characters that are professional gamblers. Yeah. Like Wild Bill Hickok and uh, Doc Holliday are my two favorites. Yeah. Bat Masterson. Yeah. How did they kind of play into the gambling scene specifically?
1: Well... It was again. It was a time where it was a little bit easier to get involved in business. So let's say you want to be a professional gambler. You basically have a big enough stake that you can have a faro table in somebody else's tavern. And you know we see this in the movie Tombstone, which is an awesome movie. Love that movie. And Val Kilmer, man, so awesome good. performance. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of see this. where, all right. Yeah. You know, you want to do it. You're you. As long as you have a big enough bankroll to pay people off if they win, you can run your faro game. Yeah. And. You also could follow, what they usually did is they would follow around the mining camps in the cow towns. So Mm -hmm. wherever the boom is, you go there and set up there and people would know who you were, and you had that reputation.
0: Now is the, well one quote I want to get to, but I like mm-hmm. what you said, because I want to clarify something that in the book I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. But one great quote that you have of Wild Bill Hickok is he gets cheated by, by, uh, by some people, and, he, and he, he said, no I had a pair of kings, and then Wild Bill Hickok says something to the effect of, well I have a pair of six, sixes pulling out his guns, <laughs> yeah. and those beat everything. I love that. That is so Wild West. It is.
1: It is. It might be the most Wild West
0: thing that I that I came across. Because <laughs> it's just, again, it's right it's that there. sort of, hey, might makes right. Right, right. <laughs> no, it is true. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned the people setting up these games. Is this what a wolf pet trap was? What was wolf that? wolf trap
1: is a little bit further east. It's started in Cincinnati, and basically it is a very low-stakes poker den that is honest but kind of brutal.
0: And you kind of have to watch yourself in there because it's pretty tough customers and pretty tough dealers too. But the people there, but like you said, are they bankrolling their own, are they basically setting up shop and bankrolling their own games? Yes, you're bankrolling your own game. So you're pretty, you're watching it pretty closely. And on that same note, because I know what you mentioned with three card money, each side Mm -hmm. is kind of in a way cheating each other um, because the people running the game are kind of, you know, they'll miss a card or they'll flip yeah. stuff around. And then other people will double their bet. So everyone's kind of cheating each other in this thing. So it's kind of a cat and mouse game, right? Yeah.
1: And you've got to watch out in these wolf traps because the clientele is pretty rough and you can't really take a lot of liberties with them. It's it's one thing if you're in New York City and you have the police paid off and you're cheating, you know, the rubes who just wandered into town. You know, it's another thing if you're somewhere in the backwoods of Kentucky and You've got a bunch of stevedores or you know other big bulky
0: guys, and you're trying to cheat them. Right, big difference. Yeah. Um, well, that, let's. So let's. We're getting a little short on time here, so I want to get to some Vegas stuff really mm-hmm. quickly before we run out of time. Um, because one thing that that in the book, as the book evolves, uh, and again, it's uh, rolled bones. Um, David Schwartz. Say that, that right. Roll the bones. Yep, that's Roll it. Roll the bones. David yep. Schwartz. Highly recommend it. Um, you you talk about how. You, Now, corporations have kind of taken over Las Vegas. Uh, But before, you know, the beginnings of Las Vegas obviously has its history in a lot of the the mobs, the syndicate, uh, unruly play. And you know, it's funny because in the book you make the argument that Vegas has been cleaned up. However, I recently um, took a cab, and they charged me $17 <laughs> to take a cab. I got a, a lift for $5. So yeah. I would argue, and, and I heard about payoffs to strip clubs and from the hotel. So I would argue that there's still an element left in Las Vegas. Um, however, I, the running of the casinos and all that may be, you know, not as much. Um, how did the uh, syndicate, I think John Morrissey might play into this, how did they kind of get into the casinos before we have the modern era where it's cleaned up? Well, you know, when Nevada legalized gambling for the second time in 1931, pretty
1: much it was low stakes, very small scale. It was bars with one or two table games and a couple of slot machines. In the 1940s, they started to build bigger casinos than what became the Las Vegas Strip. Suddenly, you didn't just need, you know, your buddy, Ted, who couldn't get another job to sit and run the poker table. You needed people with like 2 to $5 million of capital to wow. invest in something in the 40s and 50s. Right. And if you went around going to legitimate lenders saying, I, want to, I would like you to invest 2 to $5 million in a gambling hall, they would say you're crazy. Way too, and it's not that they were Puritans and didn't like risk, it was just way too risky, way too speculative. Right, right, right. right. Now, at the same time, you have a group of men who grew up during Prohibition and basically became very wealthy during Prohibition who had, after Prohibition, gone into running gambling halls illegally around the country and slot machine routes and stuff like that. Now they're in their 40s and 50s and they Mm. want to be legitimate. So a lot of them come out to Las Vegas and settle here. They bring their money with them. They also have friends who are still involved in the rackets and organized crime back East And they tell these guys, hey, do you want to invest in this? They know the business. They say, oh, yeah, we see how we can make money. So that's how it starts. Them knowing
0: the business and having a history in it, having family, it becomes key because as those generations kind of move away, uh, Vegas becomes a very different place.
1: Yeah, yeah. So what happens is they're very successful and make a lot of money. Fast forward to the 60s when these men are now in their 60s and 70s and they're starting to die out or retire. Right. You know, at the same time, there's been a change in Las Vegas, which goes back to 1955. 1955, they thought the sky was the limit. Six new casinos opened up and they bombed. They all went bankrupt. Wow. So people in Vegas got scared. And there's a famous Life magazine cover story and says Las Vegas is the boom overextended. Wow. People got really scared. And they said, we need to do something besides just gambling. So they built a convention center. And started catering to convention guests, too. Right. And they found you can build a much bigger hotel. So they started building these bigger hotels. The mainstream corporations start to see, like, wow, you can actually make a lot of money doing this. And that's how they get involved in the 60s.
0: Well, and it's really interesting um, because Howard Hughes buys out a lot of stuff. I love Mm -hmm. Howard Hughes. And I love his history in Vegas, it is so fascinating to me um, because he essentially really is that transitional period. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't he kind of the guy who buys a lot of these things because he has the capital, buys it from the old mobsters looking to get out and kind of legitimizes it, right? Is he kind of like the
1: middleman? Sort of he is, Ish. you know. It's interesting because he was really against corporations owning it. You know, he owned yeah. them all personally. The, his <laughs> right, personal right, income. right. Yeah, yeah. And he, I mean, he was against a lot of people and a lot of things. Yeah. Some of them, like the atomic testing, maybe he wasn't totally wrong. Other stuff like. The germs and the mason jars to the right. pee, probably not so well advised. <laughs> Again, back to the pee. It's kind of right. like the, know, the theme the with the... Full circle. Euromancy. <laughs> so maybe he was into that. Maybe he knew what he was talking about.
0: He <laughs> might have been a Euromancer. Yeah. Uh, we'll never know. Uh, there's a lot of stuff we haven't touched. Uh, you hit it all. I, I got to tell you, I was, I was going to read both of your books, and I was like, oh, they're about 200 pages. I can get through 400 pages, <laughs> no problem before the interview. They're really long books, 400 pages. However, they read like a novel. I loved reading about the history of Vegas, which we didn't really get into the details. There is so much that has happened in the past, just in the past 20 years, not to mention the past 40 years, on how Vegas, the entire surface has changed um, just the, everything about it has changed. Highly recommend the book. Roll the Bones. How can people get in touch with you? How can people learn more about you and all that stuff? Uh,
1: my website's dgschwartz.com, so that's a good place. I'm on UNLV at Dr. Dave. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm gaming.unlv.edu is the Center for Gaming Research. I'm on Twitter at uh, Dr. Dave 702.
0: I now have links to all this stuff. Um, uh, It's great stuff. Uh, I really appreciate you talking to me about it because this has been something I've been into. And, of course, we touched on the Wild West, one of my favorite things (laughs) uh, where gambling had its peak, in my personal opinion. I love that as far as Americana goes. Uh, Dr. Dave Schwartz, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's awesome. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Parrientos with music and sound design, written and performed by E.A. Parrientos. If you like this episode and want to learn more about this and previous guests and previous episodes, go to fascinatingnouns.com and check it out. Links to everything there, links to old episodes, links to the guests, uh, all of their social media, everything like that. And speaking of social media, if you like the show, you can check out the show on social media, right at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. We got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, all that stuff, all the modern things. Check it out there. And if you like this show, I'm gonna go out on a limb and gonna say you're gonna like my other show, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, where I take a fictional technology and teach you how to make it in real life with a group of experts, including rocket scientists, engineers, biologists, all that kind of stuff, fascinating gadgets, gizmos, gear-based technologies, fggbt.com, that's fggbt.com. say it with me, fggbt.com. and if you like that show, if you like fascinating nouns, you might like everything that I do, go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out, I've got all kinds of things there, and if you like it, check out the newsletter, at the bottom of the page, you can sign up and get all the behind-the-scenes stuff. I think you'll love it. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.